This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Cloud Atlas, David Mitchell's 2004 novel and the basis for the film by the Wachowskis and Tom Teichberg. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. Joining me from Brooklyn on the phone is Megan O'Rourke, a Slate cultural critic. Hi, Megan. Hi, Dan and Emily. And in New Haven, we have Emily Bazelon, a Slate senior editor. Hi. Hello. Thank you both for joining me in this day, just a couple days after the attack of Sandy. So we've been improvising our get together, and I'm glad that we've managed to get us all in the same meta room, even if we're not actually in the same physical space. As in all our audiobook clubs, we recommend that you listen to us after you read this book, because today we're going to be talking quite a bit about the six plots of Cloud Atlas, because for those who are listening, Cloud Atlas tells six different stories over the course of hundreds of years, from the tale of a hapless San Francisco notary's Pacific journey in the 19th century to a story set in the primitive far future in that same Pacific long after the collapse of society. And I'm really excited to talk to you both about this novel, about all the different stories in it, about all the different voices in it, about uh, how playful David Mitchell is with style. I'm also really interested in your takes on the novel's philosophy, such as it is, and its take on the future. But let's maybe just start with a very simple question for both of you, and maybe we'll start with Emily first. Which of these six stories did you like the best? Which one grabbed you? And which one, if there was one, did you like the least? Huh. You know, I was thinking of them as like the different strands of a big braid. So I sort of hate to choose among them. But I have to say that I got more and more interested as the novel went on. And so the way it's constructed, it's been compared a lot to Russian Matryoshka dolls, where you have one plot nesting within the next. And in the middle of the book comes the most futuristic chapter, kind of many years after the fall of civilization. And that's the part of the book where the story is all told in one big burst. And I have to say, I loved that story. I also, though, loved the story that both precedes and follows that one, which is also futuristic. It's about a dictatorship in North Korea in which there are, by that point in time, this, like, half genetically created creatures called fabricants running around. And that story is told from the point of view of a fabricant. And it's a 
story of rebellion. How about you, Megan? Which of the stories really grabbed you? I have to just second what Emily said. I mean, first of all, they are so interconnected, but I thought by far the most successful part of the book, storytelling and actually on the level of just writing, were the middle that Slusha's crossing and what happened after I'm summarizing the name and the San Mi section and kind of futuristic soul. Those felt like that was where he really figured out how to immerse the reader in his themes rather than to kind of get the reader a bit mired in exposition, which I feel happens elsewhere. And, you know, but these themes of rebirth and birth and the question of whether the cycle of life is meaningful or meaningless as one of the characters in that futuristic soul section asks the kind of themes of colonialism, of power, you know, of struggle for power between segments of society. I thought in those sections, it was, you know, for me, just the most enjoyably and provocatively realized. I also really love the Sunmi 451 section, which is the section set in Korea, the fifth of the book's six sections, the Korea of the far distant future. And I really loved its structure specifically, which is that of an interview. It's an interview between an archivist, a historian of that society, and this uh, fabricant Sunmi who is responsible for a rebellion of sorts that at the time of the recording has not really taken root. But we learn from events later in the book that it does eventually take root and really change the world quite a bit. I really like that story, but I also really, really, really loved the second section, the letters from Zedelgem, which is the story of a young composer, Robert Frobisher, who becomes the amanuensis to an older British composer, is sort of in exile in Belgium, named Vivian Ayers. And that story, the writing of it, I thought did a much better job than all the other sections for me of really crystallizing a lot of the concerns of the book with history and posterity and the way that one generation and the past talks to the future and the future talks to the past. For me, that was the section that really did it. You know, one of the things I think David Mitchell is enthralled with is how you wrestle with the bonds that both propel you forward as an artist and that hold you back. And Robert Frobisher, who's the narrator and protagonist in the section you were just talking about, Dan, is a great example of that. He's this young composer. He's broke. He's on the edge of destitute. And he kind of shows up to be the amanuensis of this older man and then both takes flight in the company of his sort of mentor and also becomes, you know, totally frustrated and angry with him. Right. Because they are working together in a way to create something amazing, but they both have different views of who is contributing what, how they're contributing what and what the relationship really ought to be. And and also it's made slightly more complicated indeed by the fact that Frobisher is also sleeping with the guy's wife. Mm. And semi in love with his daughter. And semi in love with his daughter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like that section too. You're right that these are all braided together thematically. But I mean, as they exist in the book, they are not particularly braided together physically. I mean, as you mentioned, it's a nesting doll structure. And so we get half of each story as we go through it from the past to the future, then we get all of the Slusha's Crossing story in the far, far future, and then we get the second halves of all the other stories. So, I mean, they're not berated in the traditional way. They're, we really get big chunks of storytelling, and so it's not as though we have to flip back and forth as a reader narratively from one section to the next and have to keep track of who's who and what's what. We really get immersed in these stories. And it was interesting to me, one of the many fun things about this book is finding the resonances from one section to another. And one of the resonances that you see is of 
the structure of the novel as it relates to the structure of the piece of music that Frobisher eventually writes, influenced in part at least by uh, the work that he does with Vivian Ayers called the Cloud Atlas Sextet. He describes it as a sextet for overlapping soloists, and it mimics the exact compositional structure of the novel. An oboe plays a suite, and then it's interrupted in the middle, and then the next instrument continues. So did you find this structure in the novel? Did you find it gimmicky or revolutionary, as Frobisher asks of his sextet? Did you find it fun? Were you frustrated by it? I liked it. I didn't find it revolutionary. One thing I appreciated about it is that the links between the sections are fairly light. So, for example, obviously, this piece of music called Cloud Atlas is freighted with meaning and it moves forward in time. But it doesn't do so in a way where you're constantly keeping score about how many clues he has set for you to pick up along the way. You can actually enjoy each story as its own organic piece of work without getting obsessed with if you understand how they fit together. I don't know if I think that that's true. I feel like the book fails or succeeds, stands or falls, to some degree on whether one feels as a reader that this kind of work in nested pieces reaches a larger whole. And that's sort of a question I'm interested to hear us explore a bit. But I think it's a very clever structure. One of the things that I'm fascinated by in Mitchell's work is the fact that he keeps being called postmodern and difficult. I don't find this to be a very difficult book. He's actually really interested in storytelling and in narrative, even though he's also interested in dialect and he's very inventive. So I actually appreciate that about him a lot, that he's very, very inventive, but also kind of has an investment in, you know, a humanist story, more or less. To me, I felt like the structure sets up certain kinds of problems for him as a writer to solve, one of which is this question of how do they relate. And I do agree. I love the fact that he doesn't, you know, he both isn't making you do too much work, but he's not kind of making everything too tidy. I felt actually at points maybe things were a little too tidy and that there wasn't enough kind of like subtextual connection between connections to be drawn. Right. That the connections are, oh, he's He's got a comet scar. Right, right. (laughs) She's reading these letters. He's whatever. Yes. One of the things that I'm wondering and struggling about with this book is the fact that at a certain point you realize, or I think you're supposed to realize, that the whole thing is fictional, which is to say even within the reality of Sanmi and Lucia's world, like once you get to the world, and once you get to Timothy Cavendish, right. then the world becomes real within the context of the book, but when they actually change this in the movie, everything before it, I think, is fictional. Or at least is called into question, right? Like Robert Frobisher reads the diaries of Adam Ewing, and he casts doubts on how such a thing could really be real. But one of the things that we haven't said about all these sections is that they're all sort of spoofing, or not spoofing, that's not the right word, but they're all not only is there an interview, each section is told in the form of where the telling becomes self-conscious. There are letters, or it's a diary, or it's an interview, or it's a kind of pulp novel. But in each section, the act of telling is foregrounded, to some degree with the exception of Louisa Ray. And then also each section is kind of a bit of a play on a on a narrative subgenre. So, you know, the detective novel, the kind of, you know, Dashiell Hammett detective novel, or the, you know, 19th century seaman's journals, or, you know, the sci-fi futuristic thing, et cetera, et cetera. I felt like the moments where Mitchell decided he had to self-consciously comment on his use of genre were too intrusive. The one that bothered me the most is that Timothy Cavendish, this kind of 
wacky, older literary vanity publisher in England is reading the Louisa Ray mystery that we've just gotten engrossed in and then making fun of it as being very pulpy and silly. And I felt like that was going too far in the direction of let me show you that I understand the weaknesses in my own work. And that section, I think, is probably the weakest. I think he doesn't pull off the pulpy thing entirely. But also that moment, right, the Louisa Ray thing is written by another person. So then suddenly that text becomes a purely fictional text, which means that the Cloud Atlas, Sextet, and Frobisher become purely fictional, which means that Adam Ewing becomes purely fictional, which until that point, it didn't have to be. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if that's actually intentional or not. I couldn't tell whether... I don't know. It must be intentional, but yeah, I don't know. Very little about this novel strikes me as unintentional. Yeah. I guess it's it's meant to make us feel that it doesn't matter. Like, everything is metafictional. Everything is a structure that we're telling. Everything is a kind of, you know, reality and unreality, and the stories we tell ourselves are as important as the, the lives we lead. And the further forward we go in time, the more we actually end up with the storytelling being a Homeric kind of device, because the right. Slusha's crossing narrator is right. orating as he is drinking around the table. And yet that's also the most real, because those people right. are the reality of the book, which is actually very clever. Anyway, okay, I had to just work through that. Well, and you're right, Megan, <laughs> that is not a particularly difficult postmodern exercise. This book is an extremely accessible series of stories, all six of which are very narratively compelling and have great like plot motors running through them. And it takes sort of a great semi-revolutionary postmodern structure, the Italo Calvino structure of interrupted stories that never end. As you might think of it, it's, it takes six stories and interrupts them, but then puts a mirror right in the middle of the book, right? So then you get to see the ends of those six stories. So it takes a what could be a frustrating postmodern device and creates like the most narratively satisfying way of dealing with that device by by frustrating us at first but then giving us the endings to each of these six stories in turn and so we get like six satisfying endings as opposed to just one mm. but it's, right, it's very cohesive in the end so let's talk about that a little you mentioned earlier megan and i think you're right that the success or failure of this novel depends to some extent on whether all six of these make up a whole and i think to answer that question we sort of have to start talking about the philosophy or I guess the cosmology maybe of this novel, like certain characters dream about the future and some characters have this comet-shaped birthmark that you mentioned. And there's this idea of the cloud atlas that sort of floats through it in both the sextet and in both in people's minds. I actually want to read two sections quickly that sort of delve into this issue that, that seem to me to isolate the philosophy of this book. One is from the Timothy Cavendish section. It's a section that I starred and noted in the book, and then it in fact appears verbatim in the movie because it's so neat, an expression of this book's idea of the way that things interact. He's on the train, and he's noting that the train goes right through at the town where he met his first girlfriend and had his first sexual experience. And he says, you would think a place the size of England could easily hold all the happenings in one humble lifetime without much overlap. I mean, it's not ruddy Luxembourg we live in. But no, we cross, crisscross, and recross our old tracks like figure skaters. And then later, on page 308 in the Slusha's Crossing section, right as Zachary, the main character, is rescued from the big island of Hawaii, which has been completely overtaken by savages, he's in a kayak and he's looking up at the sky. And uh, he says, I watched clouds wobbly from the floor of that kayak. Souls cross ages like clouds cross skies. And though a cloud's shape nor hue nor size don't stay the same, it's still a cloud, and so is a soul. Who can say where the clouds blowed from or who the soul will be tomorrow? Yeah. 
I was going to read that passage, too, because that seems like so central to the book. Are we meant then to think of the book, as Mitchell has said in interviews, as the journey of one single soul through these six eras? Does it track that way? To me, it doesn't really at all. Like, I don't necessarily see what the progression of this soul is or whether it's developing in some way. And other than the birthmark, I don't necessarily know why one character in each of these stories would necessarily be the reincarnation, fictional or real, of some previous character. What about you guys? That part was the most interesting part of the book. I wish it had been a little more subtle. At I think it could have been more realized and maybe a the little comet more... The comet-shaped birthmark wasn't subtle enough for you? <laughs> maybe not quite subtle enough. But actually, even the movie kind of gave up on that at a certain point. Two other quotes I would just add are, there's one where Haiju hai Im is saying in the Sanmi 451 section in the future, he talks about a deity that offers salvation from a meaningless cycle of birth and rebirth. And I think one of the questions this book is asking is, is the cycle of death and rebirth meaningless? And then there's also a line that Mitchell writes, which I think is also really relevant. All revolutions are fantasies until they happen, and then they are historical certainties. But just to go back to your question, I mean, it felt kind of like Nietzsche's idea of eternal recurrence is mentioned at one point, and that feels really important to this book. Um, it does feel like it is a progression and that the heart of this book is really Slusha, the Slusha story. I don't think this book would work if it didn't have the Slusha story, and I think that story is actually really ingeniously done. And the crucial moment, I think, is the moment when Slusha decides to disobey one of the three things he's been told he must do in this auguring, which is a kind of dream. Yeah, it's the prophecy. Right, and one of the things this book asks us to believe, I think, is in the possibility of the supernatural, not just on the level of the soul recurring, but in the, the like, in Slusha's world, there does seem to be kind of, you know, a real access to the spirit world. And, you know, he crucially disobeys one of the things, which is to not slit the throat in front of him, and, and he does it. And I feel like that's Mitchell's moment of saying, this is a cycle that will go on forever. It is not progress in the sense that we think of it. This is a book, and the reason I'm not sure it succeeds ultimately as a great work of art is, on the level it might aspire to, is that I don't know if it's answering this question of, are these lives meaningful or meaningless? Because that moment, which is a profound moment, seems to suggest, like, no, we're just bound to our, you know, our violence. We're bound to our self-destruction. It's going to kind of eternally recur and be a kind of dialectic in a way that kept making me think of Battlestar Galactica. I just kept feeling like that was the, like, other text that this book reminded me of. Not Greek tragedy? Right, right. No, I buy that. I buy right? that, yes, that society is born and reborn but keeps making the same mistakes over and over. Right. But I think he also wants us not to feel totally like this isn't like a bleak book, right? And things do kind of wrap up and it ends on a very optimistic note, which is we go back to the very beginning and, and a guy from the 19th century is basically going to like become a crusader in the abolitionist cause and say right. like, no, people cannot enslave other people. People cannot treat people this way. And so it's kind of like dark and yet it's not so bad because maybe if one drop in the ocean changes, it will all change. So I don't know. What do you guys think of that? It just seemed really well, muddy to me. Like it just yeah. seemed like it didn't have a message necessarily. And and I guess I don't know that I wanted there to be a message stated outright. These are how these people relate to each other and this is my view of the world. But it felt just sort of like gauzy, we are all connected of the sort that lands you on the bestseller list but does not necessarily, as you suggest, Megan, create a great work of art. Like I didn't feel a real world view behind this other than the pleasure of creating puzzles and sort of solving them. 
One of the things I kept thinking about is how interested Mitchell is in the future fallen world and in dystopia. I just actually had read A Thousand Autumns of mm-hmm. Jacob Desert, which is one of his previous books. And in that book, a later in a kind book. of – Sorry, mar- just to interrupt. It's a later book. Later. later than – Sorry. <laughs> I always remember books in the order I've read them. Right. <laughs> one of his later books. <laughs> and in that book, there's almost a kind of handmaid's tale, Margaret Atwood – theme going on, even though the book is set in 1799 in Japan. And he is obsessed, I think, with revolution and oppression and with superimposing onto his narrative a structure of, you know, utter dictatorial imprisonment. That's what's going on in the San Mi story, which I think works quite well for him. And yet on the level of human relationships and love, He's not so great, I don't think. He's not so good at showing how these relationships among these characters are really the driving force behind them. And so I feel like that's what's missing for me in his worldview, that it's almost too caught up and too clearly Nietzschean and about kind of reincarnation in this way I didn't really buy, as opposed to being more grounded in the way people relate to each other and what they mean to each other. And I just don't think he's so interested in that. Right. Like the most passionate relationships in the this book are between people and texts. Right. Right. And the one moment we have of any sex, I think the one moment or one of the only moments is between a fabricant and the person who's supposedly helping her but really isn't. And it's described in such an abstract, you know, feelingless way. Or we get a gay man having sex with the wife of his mentor more or less as an academic exercise. Right. 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 One of the reasons I like the futuristic sections the most and I found them the most successful is that he's quite good at at speculative fiction, at inventing a reality and and inventing a a language for that reality. I felt like he's less good when he's trying to imitate a genre. And I, I think weirdly for someone who's so imaginative or maybe not weirdly, He's not that great at moving his characters from one place to another. It's something he mm. struggles with. There's a lot of pretty laborious, like in the Slusha's Crossing, he, there's a long paragraph about which of two roads they're going to take, which could have just been entire. It's like a whole page. It could have just been cut, right? right? And he could have just moved the characters to the next scene and said, after debating which road, we took this one, <laughs> you know, and it was the more dangerous. Sorry, Megan, that Zachary didn't take an MFA program. <laughs> it's not an MFA. It's the New Yorker editor in me. It's the opposite <laughs> of MFA program. Are you kidding? But just the New Yorker editor in me was like, you can move it forward because he's so, you know, he's so able. I just wanted to like help him along. But the other thing is this question of character. And he, like many heady writers, I feel like he's very invested in some of the characters. And again, that's why San Mi, I think, is a fabulous character. Fabulous the fabricant, character. just yeah, to be clear. Yes, I agree. She becomes a fabricant who becomes an esthete. It's a, it's a truly complex character. You know, some of the other characters, because he's working in these genre modes, like Timothy Cavendish, very funny, but almost felt like a sketch for a film. And again, I actually think the film version of his story works much better than the... Oh, than it's the, by far the best part of the movie. By far the best yes. part. And the not book, the best like, part yeah, of the book at all. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. But I totally agree. Character is, and the interactions among characters, like, and this is one of the many critiques of the book that took place when it was published, was, you know, people saying if the characters could be a little bit more three-dimensional, you know, this book might be more successful. Not that one's characters always have to be three-dimensional, but I think in this book they actually do want to be a little bit more. I'd love to talk a little bit more about something that you touched on, Emily, about Mitchell's infatuation with dystopia and rebellion. It's not just in the Sanmi story. It's in every one of these stories, honestly. And and it seems to me that this book has a very interesting relationship with capitalism. Mm-hmm. 
particularly, I mean, we have the evils of the slave trade in the first section and the energy company in the Louisa Ray Mysteries that is that's withholding information about the danger that this nuclear plant poses to the coast of California. And then obviously in the San Mi story, we have Papa Song and the the corporatic society that she lives in in the Korea of the future, a world ruled by corporations. But then even the Timothy Cannavish section is like, it's set at this like nightmare of an old folks home in which the corporation, the old folks home, has trapped these people inside it. And it's played for light comedy, but it's really quite nightmarish, honestly. And he <laughs> refers to one flew over the cuckoo's nest and it's apt that he does. Right, yeah. <laughs> He'd be missing is. if he didn't. And then in the far future, we have on the big island, we have these Kona warriors who are essentially these like rapacious corporate raiders of their day sweeping over the valley and destroying this more or less peaceful society simply because they have the organization and power to be able to do so. And so it's it's fun watching these things come together. And obviously, for the purposes of film, it was lessened somewhat given that Warner Brothers, I think, has no particular interest in seeing corporations maligned on screen. But did you guys see this the way I did? Did you see corporations as sort of the recurrent evil in this book? Mitchell is better off the more his characters are in a straitjacket. Mm -hmm. So Cavendish has to be in the prison of the old age home and Adam Ewing is on the relative prison of this slave ship. Mm -hmm. And somehow it's when he propels himself into the future that it's most convincing. It's almost as if – and this is particularly a problem in the Louisa Ray story that like you guys were both talking about where the corporation is potentially sending nuclear particles out into the world. It just felt – somehow less, not less believable, but more familiar in a way that made it just feel like you were reading like an alt newspaper story, which is in fact what Louisa Ray works for. I kept thinking of Polybius and the idea of the cycle of government through democracy, aristocracy, mm -hmm. monarchy, and the degenerate forms of oligarchy and tyranny. And obviously, hypocrisy. He, hypocrisy, corpocracy, and hypocrisy, right? Like, for me, the thread being whatever world you end up with, there's an overclass and an underclass, and there's someone trying to oppress others through violence, whether that violence is kind of capitalist, kind of, you know, oppression of controlling consumption of goods, or whether it's the Kona, who are actually really portrayed as pretty violent and evil, but maybe not without redemption, as they say. So, yeah, I mean, not just capitalism, but this idea that whatever mode you set up, one group is going to aspire to have control over the other, that there's a theme of the strong eat the weak. And yet at the same time, he plays with the idea of conspiracy, right? So you can think that you are fighting the good fight against the regime and in fact be a tool of that regime. And that comes up particularly in the Somni story in a quite unsettling way. Yeah. That Shitsanmi learns or we learn at near the end that the union, the rebellion movement in this corpocracy is in fact constructed by the governing body itself to serve as a release for those who have anti-corpocracy feelings and it allows the corporations in charge to keep tabs on them and sort of guide their rebellious impulses in a way that can be easily stopped down. Right. It's like a safety valve. And then once I read that, I started reinterpreting the other stories along those lines. And then that even led me to cast doubt on the more hopeful ending you were talking about, mm. Megan, where, yeah, Adam Ewing goes off to work for the abolitionist movement, but maybe that's just the safety valve of his time. Right. Although it was a safety valve that was eventually successful. Yeah, I mean, in true. the same way that we're led to believe that Sanmi, the safety valve 
of her right. time that that revolution took seed and was inspired by her. And even after her presumed death, she became – in the world of the sixth story, in the world of Zachary's story, she's the god that they pray to. They pray right. to Right, and she and, hopes that for herself as she's writing this tract of rebellion. Right. I think that ending is earnest like because we do know abolitionism succeeded to some degree even though it is replaced by some other forms right. of inequality right. <laughs> that we all know well. But I think you're right. I mean if there's one historical thread to pull that's like – gives you hope and is inspiring. It's got to be the <laughs> slavery abolition movement. <laughs> right. right. There's a couple other sections I want to read to ask you about this question. But what did you guys think of the book's view of something that you mentioned earlier, Megan, this view of – or maybe it was Emily. I can't remember. Who, this view of what inspires artists and why they create the things they create. I want to read two sections, very short ones. One is on page 81 and it's uh, once again Robert Frobisher talking about Vivian Ayers, the composer he's working for, and how they view – civilization. He says, uh, I don't recall its name, but ever since he's talking about a Siamese temple that he saw a picture of, ever since a disciple of the Buddha preached on the spot centuries ago, every bandit king, tyrant, and monarch of that kingdom has enhanced it with marble towers, scented arboretums, gold leaf domes, lavished murals on its vaulted ceilings. When the temple finally equals its counterpart in the pure land, so the story goes, that day humanity shall have fulfilled its purpose and time itself shall come to an end. To men like Vivian Ayers, it occurs to me, this temple is civilization. The masses, slaves, peasants, and foot soldiers exist in the cracks of its flagstones, ignorant even of their ignorance. Not so the great statesmen, scientists, artists, and most of all, the composers of the age, any age, who are civilization's architects, masons, and priests. Uh, my employer's profoundest or only wish is to create a minaret that inheritors of progress a thousand years from now will point to and say, look, there is Vivian Ayers. How vulgar, this hankering after immortality. How vain, how false. Composers are merely scribblers of cave paintings. And we see that echoed several times again, most hilariously in Louisa Ray explaining that she interviewed Hitchcock one time and she got the impression that he was just saying things in hopes that hundreds of years from now someone would say something funny and someone else would go, wasn't it Hitchcock who said that? <laughs> but do you get the impression which side of this argument does Mitchell agree with? I mean, does he think that he and the other artists of his age are building these minarets on a great temple of civilization or, or does the example of the collapse of society and – and the great disastrous Pentecostalist coup of North America, that just the future that he <laughs> describes suggests that none of this stuff really matters. I think he's having it both ways. And one of the reasons I think that is this image that has stuck with me from The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zud. There's a drawing in that book that is crucial to the book and imbued with an incredible amount of love and sincere meaning. And I just don't think the person who wrote that story really believes that artistic creations are you know, these silly minarets that are all about vainglory. Mm -hmm. I think he's trying to capture a certain kind of historical way of thinking about art in that passage, right? That I think he does feel is a little bit lost to him, right? And lost all of everyone today trying to make art, make novels, mm -hmm. certainly. I think you don't have that confidence that maybe the late 19th century Europeans had or the early 20th century Europeans maybe still had that sense of, you know, monumentality in, in the work. So I think that's a little bit of like a a kind of, you know, way of immersing oneself in that mindset for a moment. I don't know that he feels that way or that the book suggests that he does, but there is definitely this idea that there's transmission, right? I mean, that's, that's what this book is all about is not only the reincarnation of souls, but, you know, the soul of the character who seems to go through it, but 
but transmission of information and transmission through text. Right, from age to age. And some of those texts are extremely meaningful and some not, like San Mi. But then Louise Ray is like, well, how meaningful is that supposed to be to Cavendish? It's mostly like a good story to him. So I think there's some, you know, ambiguity in there. I think that maybe what you are qualifying as ambiguity, I just feel is sort of vagueness. I, mean, I, I agree. I Yeah. Sorry. I'm jumping <laughs> in. I totally agree, actually. I love the middle, the core of this book. I feel like he figured out what novel he was really writing there. And the rest of it, he's like writing towards that. And mm-hmm. I wish that in in my like a world of idealized literature, he you know there would be a version of Cloud Atlas where he went back to the beginning <laughs> and then kind of figured out like because especially the first section feels really labored to me like mm-hmm. he's setting up his themes he has to have the story of the Maori and then the Moriori and he has like so much exposition and it's really the character's voice doesn't feel very clear to me yet. I think also one of the things I experienced in this book is I don't feel like he trusts the reader fully. So he's like doing a lot of work for us that if he were doing other kinds of work that were less expository and drawing the connections might've made the book even more resonant, strangely, Mm -hmm. right. By being a little bit less plotted. So I kind of agree with you. Like why, like, Timothy Cavendish, like the old age of home part of that is really moving, especially if you happen to have an in-law or parent in such a place, you really feel that. But it's such a like rip-roaring story, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know how to take that in relationship to some of the other sectors. I don't know. I don't know. But that may just be me as a reader. I like wanted a little bit more gravity in some of the section. Well, we haven't talked about the movie that much, but one of the reasons that that story is so successful in the movie is that it serves as a real relief from the much darker, more difficult, challenging as a viewer sections of that movie. And because the movie is structured very differently from the book, the movie is braided as to use a verb that we used earlier. It is little tiny fragments of each story interacting with each other. So we'll get one minute of one story and then it'll switch to the far future and then back to the past and then to the present and It takes us through that all the way through its 17-hour running time. And so that story, the Timothy Cavendish story, tonally I feel like works better in the movie because it offers us a little bit of a break, like a cheerful comedy break from everything else that we're seeing. Whereas in the book, it's like a 100 pages of this sort of light comedic tone and this super like fairly annoying guy's voice that we have to deal with <laughs> for like pages and pages and pages. And then it ends and we're like, well, great, it's over. But now we know we have to come back to him. We have to have like another 50 pages of this guy. So in defense of David Mitchell, and I'm not sure I fully support this, but to put it out there, if one of his themes is about transmitting texts into the future and why artists write, whether it's merely ego or whether there's this larger, more monumental project at stake for other reasons, Could you argue that some of this book fulfills the larger ambition and some of this book almost deliberately sticks to the picaresque or the pulpy detective novel as a way of saying, look, not all of this is going to make it and I'm trying out different variations on a theme here? I think this is the, you know, the contemporary part of his novel is that he's trying to be you know, like he's trying to draw on popular culture and the Cavendish section. Also, we have to remember he's a British writer. The Cavendish section seems like a very much an homage to Dickens, but maybe not the most, I think, right? But then it feels very Dickensian in a certain way, like the kind of larger than life character, the funny names. Right. I think that is probably what he's trying to do. And I think it maybe could have worked. It's really, really hard. And I think that that's a good reading too, Emily. But the problem then with creating things that are meant to be intentionally 
eventually obsolete in your text is that the structure of this novel requires that we still spend 100 pages on this thing that if your entire point is that this is not meant to last, he has to go all in, right? It's all or nothing. And so he's got to devote 100 pages to it because of the structure of his book and we have to deal with all 100 pages of that even though there are other sections that are far more resonant or useful or amazing. I just think that fundamentally as a writer, he is the most absorbed in and the best when he moves into true dystopia. When, you know, when the things that are binding people and the straitjacket they're in are this incredibly oppressive, scary, futuristic government. And that's not an easy kind of fiction to write. I mean, you know, since George Orwell, we haven't had that many people pull it off successfully. At least in my view, there are lots of young adult novels that do Yeah. That. No, and I mean, <laughs> well. it's interesting that in Britain right now, that there are a bunch of writers who are working in that vein. I mean, there's also like China Mieville, and there, there are other writers who are somewhat working in that vein. And I definitely agree. I mean, I think the book like reaches another level with Sanmi mm-hmm. and, and Zachary, the Solutions Crossing section, because those characters, it's still really the Sanmi section, like totally shows off a kind of versedness in popular culture and consumer culture. It's not like it's like, in a high register at all, but it's so, um, there's a horror in it that we're allowed to feel, even if there are also light moments. That section is the one where his desire to play with language and the tenor of the story itself, I feel like most perfectly dovetail. Mm. So that the morphed language that they're speaking so accurately reflects the horrible society that he envisions in the future that it really it's really, really powerful. And yet I'm not sure I would have wanted to read 500 pages in that universe. I agree with your critique, Dan, about the wading through parts of this book. And yet I didn't want him to only take out Zachary and Sanmi. Right. In the Sanmi section, I totally was brought into a world in which I could identify with a woman who had been born in one reality and had an awakening and awakened to a new reality that was totally persuasive to me. And it is a kind of, you can see why the Wachowskis were drawn to this because it is very much like the Matrix, right? right. Mm-hmm. And he did that extremely well. Her voice is extremely accurate, I think. The voice in the first section, you know, with Adam Ewing, and he's kind of doesn't see what's going on with Dr. Henry Goose, who's poisoning him slowly. Like, there's something hapless about that character. And I kind of have this feeling that Mitchell does hapless when he doesn't quite know how to get into the character's voices. He did this also in The Thousand Autumns. And you just feel a bit like the voice of the character doesn't manage to fully dramatize in in its being and its kind of characterness the conundrum of being alive at that time, which is to say the conundrum of coming across slaves, it's trying to do that. There's one or two really moving scenes in that section and really powerful scenes, not just moving, like the scene where he sees a slave being whipped and identifies with him. But in Sanmi, you're just that character and Zachary's character, and they just totally embody something about what it means to be alive in the time that they're living. That's a really good point, Megan. Although I will say that I love Jacob Desit. In fact, I liked it significantly more than I like this novel. Mm. Um, I feel that way about it, too. It feels more like a fully realized Mm -hmm. novel to me. But then I love Black Swan Green, in fact, Mm -hmm. even more than Jacob Desit. And you guys will see when this coming month's issue of the Slate Book Review has a piece about Black Swan Green for our David Mitchell Palooza that we're launching, arguing for it as the book that should replace Catcher in the Rye as the book that cool teachers give kids to try and get them to know that adults really do sort of understand what being a teenager is like. 
I mean, I guess they're sort of dystopian in that they're about a, a totalitarian society of 1799 Japan or the totalitarian society of being a kid when adults have their way with you. But they're not futuristic. I mean, they're not science fiction. And so I guess in the end, the question is, you know, do you recommend Cloud Atlas? Do you guys think people should read this book? I really enjoyed it. And so I do recommend it on that level. The other thing, I just started reading David Mitchell in the last year or two. I thought, as you were saying earlier, Megan, that he was really hard and that it was going to feel like homework. And it's very accessible fiction. It's like something you could take on vacation and enjoy reading. So I would also encourage people... I you could read well I don't know no no I wasn't being sarcastic sorry that may have come across no I think it's a great it's a fantastic beach book I thought you were making fun of me I'm glad we're in the same beach book camp no no not at all I I anyway I would just encourage people who are worried that they were you know going back to their college fiction class to pick it up without that concern yeah I agree I mean I think you'll know pretty quickly if this is a book that would appeal to you the thing I will say is that I think there are going to be people who might not get into the first section who might actually really like the rest of this book. So Mm. I think it's a book, you know, give it a chance. I really think the middle section is so rewarding. I totally agree. Black Swan Green, wonderful. One of the things about Mitchell is a little bit like Hilary Mantel this way. He writes very different books from book to book. I mean, there's some continuity with Number Nine Dream and Ghostwritten, but they're very different books. Each of of these books is very different. And so it's worth kind of sniffing around at all of his stuff and seeing what you like. He really seems like a writer who just loves setting himself a challenge and seeing what happens when he gives it a shot. And I love that about him, even if I didn't love this book as much as other ones. Well, thank you very much, both of you. I really appreciate, once again, you going the extra mile in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy to join me for this. Well, it was such a delight to have this to look forward to. A program note for listeners, our next audiobook club selection is N.W., the new novel by Zadie Smith that focuses on four characters who all grew up in the same impoverished London neighborhood. Uh, Reviews have been fascinating so far. They've wrestled with Smith's fractured language and her storytelling, and readers seem torn as to whether this book confirms or undoes her accomplishments in White Teeth and her other novels. So please check out the book this month and then join us for our discussion on December 1st. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. Uh, That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. And of course, please subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Megan O'Rourke and Emily Bazelon, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.